This morning I'm uh, going to give you a little bit of an introduction to another book. Last week we looked at the beginning, well not even the beginning, but I gave you an introduction to the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus' basically summary of Bible prophecy. And what he does in a very short two chapters in Matthew's Gospel, and there's some parallels in the other Gospels, he basically gives an overview of future things. In other words, an overview of eschatology in general. So he touches on all of the major areas. And that is what we will be studying. We'll be studying the Olivet Discourse sentence by sentence. But some of you also desired to know a little bit about Ezekiel. So rather than go sentence by sentence, that would take us several years. (laughs) I'm going to give you an overview this morning. And Ezekiel also gives us a little bit of uh, Old Testament background to the same things that Jesus will be dealing with in the Olivet Discourse. So it'll give us some context. It'll give us some background and some context. So we're going to just look at an overview. And this morning, and I'm going to do it in two parts. So you have on your outline sheet there, front and back. We'll just do the front part today, if we even get through with that. And then next week, we'll look in broad strokes at the main thrust of the whole book. So Ezekiel this morning... The main thrust of Ezekiel is God's glory. God's glory. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of God's glory? Anyone have a suggestion? Main theme. One of the main themes, one of the main emphasis is God's glory. What do we mean, or particularly what does the Bible mean when it speaks of God's glory? Anyone know? That's why you came, right? God's glory, if you think about it, it basically is the composite of all that God is in revealing himself. And when he reveals his glory, he reveals that glory or some aspects of who he is to those that he's revealing. And he reveals his glory in the book of Ezekiel. Now, one of the first passages that speaks of God's glory is the book of Exodus, way at the beginning of the Old Testament. And it kind of defines for us what the Bible means when it speaks of God's glory. In fact, Moses requested to see the glory of God. He prays that God would reveal his glory. And in the same context, what God does is he reveals his glory, and the way he does that, if you read Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is given a glimpse of who God is in terms of his nature, in terms of his character. So he sees something of his compassion, something of his omnipotence, something of his mercy, some aspects. So any area when God reveals something of himself, he's revealing little bits and pieces of his glory. Now, we could not stand in the immediate presence of God. We would be obliterated if he exposed his total glory. All we can handle is bits and pieces. So in the scriptures, we have little bits and pieces revealed to us, added little pieces at a time. And and Ezekiel kind of emphasizes that idea. So we'll come back to that because that's a major thrust of the whole book. But... Right off the bat, what we want to do is we want to see something of who God is 
Because if you read the scriptures, those that have encounters with God, and most of you that have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have had a personal and intimate encounter, and you know the transformative effects that that can have on your life. And there's vivid examples. Ezekiel is one of them. When he saw a great expansion of God's glory, what did it do to him? Anyone remember? It crushed him. Knocked him over. So I hope by the end of this class, all of you are laying on the ground here. (laughs) Knocked over, all right? So let's take a look at Ezekiel, and let me give you some background so you have a feel for it. And I would encourage you to read through the book. It's not a long book, 48 chapters. (laughs) Actually, it's one of the longest ones in the Old Testament. But anyway, who is this Ezekiel? Who is the author? Who is the one that wrote this book? So let's take a little peek at him. The reason some of these are these things are important, if you know something of the background, it'll help you to understand the book itself. And our purpose this morning is to help you get a feel. What's this book all about? A lot of times when you read a book in the Old Testament, particularly There's so many strange things, things that you've never read before, and in some cases, some people have never even opened up Ezekiel. That's not true of most of you, but a book like Ezekiel, this is one of the hardest books of all of the Bible, because it just, you know, if you just try to read it, you have no idea basically what he's talking about. So you have have to have a little bit of a background. So Knowing the author, who this guy was, will help you in understanding the book itself. So let's take a look at Ezekiel. Now, critics historically have questioned the authorship of virtually every book of the Bible. And these are usually liberal theologians. In fact, almost exclusively liberal theologians. And that's the reason in a lot of churches, a lot of denominations even, where there's a lot of confusion in terms of Scripture, and people even have abandoned Scripture in a lot of denominations. One of the exceptions is Ezekiel. Even critical scholars accept Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel, as author, was not questioned, even amongst liberals, until much later, late 1800s, 1900s. And even then, the protest against Ezekiel was pretty much insignificant. So the authorship has not been questioned. And just to support this idea, it's autobiographical. In other words, Ezekiel is telling us or revealing to us things he experienced, and particularly things that were revealed to him personally. Now, all of the writers of the Bible, we believe in inspiration. Inspiration of Scripture means that God revealed his mind to the writers of Scripture. And the end product of what they wrote, he superintended in such a way that the end product is what God intended. And we believe in verbal inspiration. What's verbal inspiration? Grammatical. Not only grammatical, not only what was spoken to them or what they understood, but when we say verbal. Keep going, you'll eventually get to it. Verbal. What are verbal? What's verbal? Words. The very words. Very words. And we get that partly when Jesus says, 
you know, my very words on some occasion. He speaks in reference to his very words, obeying the very words. So we believe in verbal inspiration. So this autobiographical nature of it tells us that these are things that he heard, he experienced himself, and because God inspired him, he writes them so that we have them today. So this is the very word of God. And, and verbal inspiration versus, say, idea inspiration or... Exactly. Stuff like that. Like, here's the general thought. That, like, that's the exactly. In fact, there are some theologians, as Jeremy has pointed out, that believe in kind of a watered-down inspiration. But we believe in what we would describe as plenary, in other words, all the Bible, and verbal, even down to the very words. Another passage you might look up is Matthew 5.17, when he talks about even letters and even parts of letters. And the implication is very detailed there. Anyway, it's autobiographical. He writes in the first person. So what we have here is what God revealed to him directly. Now, not all of the writers received revelation through visions, and it almost seems like the spoken word in in the case of Ezekiel, but in Ezekiel's case, very, very directly. Like Paul, he... He tells us what God revealed to him, but it was it's more as he has processed and thought through Old Testament ideas, and he communicates that, for example, in the book of Romans. But this is very direct. And tradition has not denied Ezekiel as the author of the book. Well, who is this character? Who is Ezekiel? There's his name for all of you. Okay, who wants to pronounce it? <laughs> very good. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, that is pronounced hak, and you have to hak from way deep down. Hak zurak. Hak zurak. There you go. The Hebrew basically is translated Ezekiel, and the name means God will strengthen. God will strengthen, and this is exactly what he's done to Ezekiel. He comes from a family, the text tells us, his father's name is Buzi. He was a priest. Not all of the writers of scripture are necessarily in the priesthood in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a variety of authors from different backgrounds. So this would have made Ezekiel a priest as well. So a lot of the things that we talked about in the book of Hebrews, remember we went through the book of Hebrews, talked a lot about the priesthood in terms of biblical priesthood, he would have fit in with that whole order. So he would have functioned, and this is part of the reason why he gives us so much detail concerning the temple, particularly the future millennial temple, because he was very familiar, and he talks a lot about worship and those things related to the priesthood. A few descriptions of Ezekiel. He's described as the father of Judaism. Now, you might say, well, doesn't Judaism go all the way back to Abraham? Well, not in the form that we know it in the first century. By the first century, Judaism had changed quite a bit, considerably, from what God intended, for one thing, and it was quite different from what we even have in the Old Testament before the period of time that we're going to look at that leads up to the writing of the book of Ezekiel. 
During the period of time that's called the exile, now I'll get back to this, I'm going to give you a little historical background. During the exile, the Jewish people were excluded or exiled out of the land, and being exiled out of the land, the the temple was destroyed, so they had no access to the temple, so there were a lot of things that changed in that period of time. It's during the exile where people like the Pharisees, there's no, there's no mention of Pharisees in the Old Testament, but you come to the Gospels in the New Testament, you hear of these Pharisees. Well, who are they? Where did they come from? You hear of Sadducees. Where did they come from? Well, it came about in this period of time. And Ezekiel is called the father of Judaism because now Israel has to kind of reorganize its thinking in terms of how do we worship God now? And what's going to happen to us in the future? So in, it's in this period of time that Judaism actually changes. And by the time that Christ arrives, Judaism had uh, fully corrupted itself. And that's why Jesus had a conflict with the Jewish leaders. But he's called the father of Judaism. Now, if you read through the book, you find out he's a very strong individual, very courageous, does not back down, because he has the word of God. And he's threatened, but he does not water it down. And he's called in the reign of a king by the name of Jehoiachin. In fact, much of the ministry of Ezekiel is during the exile. Jehoiachin is one that is exiled. This is when the nation is about to collapse. I'll come back to that when I give you an overview of the, the history there. But that's the context. That's when he's called. We have a record of it in the early chapters. We'll take a look at some of that next week. And the, the captivity of the nation took place in over a period of time, but it kind of climaxed 597. I put that there because Ezekiel and others are exiled in that period of time. And I've already mentioned he's a priest, but also he's called to be a prophet. And what do prophets do? What's the main function of a prophet? <laughs> Linda's saying they're like attorneys for the covenants of God, and that would be a good description, would you say? They speak. In other words, they're God's spokesman. So you could consider every author of Scripture a prophet, including the writings of, for example, the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis, the historical books. We call those historical prophets because they're God's mouthpieces. They're the ones that receive inspiration. You could consider Paul in the New Testament a prophet. You consider Matthew a prophet in that God gave him revelation to write down the Gospel of Matthew. Well, very clearly, Ezekiel is a prophet. Now, he's also called an exilic prophet. There are two of them. Do you remember the other one? The book of Daniel. These are written during the darkest period of Israel's history. I'll get to that in a moment. So that's Ezekiel in terms of authorship. Let me give you a little bit of background here. So do you have an idea of what's going on historically? It's at the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament. It's not the end of Israel's history entirely. Why? 
can hear you guys. All right, very good. There's still a week of history of the Jewish people that is even future from our day. That's why there's still Jewish people today, because really, from the human perspective, there should not be any Jews left. They should have already either assimilated into other ethnic groups or died out, as is, as is the case with all other people that have been destroyed and exiled from their land and in some cases uh, totally conquered. But Israel does not have an end in the Old Testament as a future in fact, Israel is key to all Bible prophecy. We'll see that when we get further in. So a little bit of the background. What's Israel's origin? Where does Israel begin? Begins with Abraham, book of Genesis. In fact, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are just introductory to the nation of Israel. You could consider them introductory to the nation of Israel. God calls an individual by the name of Abraham, and I gave you kind of a big picture last week of all of world history, and what we said last week, I gave you biblical history or world history from eternity to eternity, the Bible gives us that, tells us how things will turn out in the future, all the way to eternity in the future. And obviously, the Bible begins in the beginning, in other words, this is the beginning of history, the beginning of time. That's the first word in the book of Genesis. And the origin of Israel begins in the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12. And if you want to put it on a timeline, because it's historical, and I take the biblical time frame, and I've given you that date, about 4,132, somewhere in there. That's the origin of Israel. And Israel, I'm just giving you broad strokes here, what's the purpose of Israel? What was the purpose that God designed? And you can get this from the book of Exodus, right from the very beginning of their history. Even before they're a nation, God lays it all out. The purpose of Israel? Basically, be a blessing to all the nations. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's through Israel that God intended to draw all mankind to himself. Now, they've already fulfilled some aspects of what God intended. Part of blessing the whole world, how do we, how do we benefit today? There's two ways, at least. That's the main way, through the one that is promised to Israel called Messiah. He came, first century. He was Jewish, all right? In fact, he was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. How else do we benefit today? The Abrahamic cup, well? Church. Nope. More basic. More basic. Scriptures. Exactly, the scriptures. The scriptures that reveal who God is. We would not have a clue as to who God is without understanding what God has revealed of himself. Remember I've told you about what doctrine relating to knowing God? No, it starts with an I. Sounds like. <laughs> First syllable, in. <laughs> nope. Incomprehensibility. The incomprehensibility of God. In other words, naturally, apart from revelation, we are not capable of knowing who God is. It takes revelation. It takes God revealing himself. 
And God revealed himself to people who were within the nation of Israel through inspiration such that we have what God has revealed. So we have a, a picture of God's glory. That's the main purpose. It's to reach the world. God intended to reach the world through the nation of Israel. What happened to the nation of Israel? Well, the next part of their history from about 1445, the nation emerges out of Egypt and becomes a nation. So that period of time all the way to Joshua. Book of Joshua. Takes three things to make a nation. Common people with a common background, common experiences. They, re- they experienced that in Egypt, in bondage. What else does it take to make a nation? Common people. Land. That's the third thing. But what's the second thing? Common constitution or law. The law is their constitution. And a common land. And all that comes together from the Exodus to the period of Joshua when they conquered the land. Now they're a full-fledged nation. So I see the emergence of the nation. And the nation God intended to move where? We mentioned this last week. No one was here last week. God intended Israel to become a kingdom. And it's God's kingdom through which he will work to continue to reach out and bring people to himself. The kingdom of Israel. So we have the kingdom from about 900 and what is it? Can't remember the middle of the 900s BC. David reigned around 1000 BC. And what happened to Israel? The high point of all of Old Testament history, the high point of Jewish history is under David and Solomon. And then what happened? Starting with Solomon. Actually starting with David. They're sinners like everybody else. And the nation had problems. Israel failed. And God gave them several hundred years to get their act together, sent them prophets, and these prophets called the nation back to God because they had apostatized. In other words, they had followed other gods. But they did not, and the kingdom was divided, and then after the division of the kingdom, then there was one surviving aspect, the southern portion. The northern goes into captivity. God disciplined them. Then the southern captivity, they went into captivity, Babylonian captivity. And that's where Ezekiel comes in. This is in the darkest hour of Israel's history. They were destroyed as a nation. Temple destroyed, city destroyed. Everyone dispersed, some taken into captivity. So Israel failed, and now what God is doing in the exile is he's disciplining the nation. Not annihilating them, even though their kingdom is totally destroyed, because God has promised and God has entered into covenant. And as Linda pointed out, he has made a covenant that specifies the rest of Israel's history 69 weeks of Israel's history has been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled the week before the crucifixion of Israel's Messiah. There's still one week left. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 9. We'll look at that, because I'm going to give you an overview of the book of Daniel as well. So, this is the period of Israel's discipline 
And in this period, we have prophecies. There's prophecies of judgment explaining what God is doing to the nation of Israel, but the last part of the book gives hope because Israel still has a, has a future. In fact, we have one of the most clear explanations of what's called a new covenant. A new covenant. The new covenant, we will see from Ezekiel, makes it very, very clear who the parties of the covenant are. And some of you know who those parties are, right? Israel and God and, I'm going to say no, not us. We are not, is that what you said? Ain't us, okay? It's not the church. We benefit we benefit from the new covenant only through what? The covenant, the new covenant is with Israel, and we have a glimpse of it. That covenant has not been fulfilled yet. That's still future. In fact, it'll begin in that last week of Israel's history. Everything is leading up to that final week of Israel's history. The new covenant will be fulfilled in that time frame. Make sense? All right. Israel is under discipline in this period of time, so we have Israel. The kingdom is destroyed on our timeline. And we're going to look at the specific dates, how it kind of unfolds here. So we have the destruction. So basically, there's no nation anymore. And God is now making promises through prophets. Well, he'd already made some promises through other prophets, like Isaiah, many of the minor prophets. But now in the exilic prophets, it's making them very clear that Israel still has a future. So we have a 70-year exile, and you may have heard the word diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, that is the what? What does the word mean? Dispersal. So Jewish people have been dispersed all over the Roman, well, it's not the Roman Empire yet, the Babylonian Empire and the known world at that time, such that eventually, in the first century, there are Jews basically all over the world. And the Babylonian Jews, many of them returned, so there's still a return. But there's a 70-year period of time. It's in that 70 years that Ezekiel writes. So let me describe the destruction. In 605, the Babylonian exile begins. The first group of Jewish people are taken out of the land of Israel, and they're moved to Babylon. Others are scattered. Do you know who is part of this first exile? Daniel and his three friends. In fact, what the Babylonian Empire did is they took the choice youth, the brightest and best, and obviously it doesn't mention it, but I'm sure they took the athletes, you know. <laughs> but certainly those that uh, had great potential. And their intention was to reprogram them and make them good Babylonian citizens because they had talent. And obviously because they were Jewish, they resisted that, but they learned all of Babylonian culture. So Daniel's one of them. Now Ezekiel's taken later. Daniel, along with others. Now during this period of time, also, there were some other things. Well, Judah now is under Babylonian dominion. And the exile begins. Now, remember, the numbers go backwards, because these are B.C., so 602, three years later, Jehoiakim revolts, 
He's a Jewish king that does what comes naturally to kings. They don't want to be under subjection. But some of the prophets had warned them not to do that, that God is disciplining them, and he's using the Babylonians, those evil Babylonians. In fact, remember uh, uh, Habakkuk, the little prophet Habakkuk, only three chapters? He's asking, you know, he's asking God, why are you using such evil people? Well, it's just kind of an illustration of what discipline is all about. God can use evil things and evil people when he enters into discipline of his people. And that's the case with the nation of Israel. Now, he assures Habakkuk that God is going to deal with the Babylonians, but in their time. And in fact, Ezekiel talks something of that as well. So, in 602, Judah is overrun by her enemies, not only the Babylonians, but the surrounding enemies as well. And then in 597, Nebuchadnezzar pillages the temple. In other words, he takes the gold, he takes the utensils, he takes all of the, the valuables of the temple, takes them to Babylon. This is what kings do. King Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel and others are exiled in that period of time. Ezekiel and others are exiled. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city, and that is considered the final conquest of the nation of Israel. In this case, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. 586, that's the end. So just put yourself in their shoes. God has these great promises for them. He's been warning them that if they don't turn back, they have followed other gods. He's going to discipline them, and now everything is gone. The city is gone. The temple is destroyed. The people are scattered. Others are taken into captivity. No more Israel. No more Israel. That's the context of the book of Ezekiel. And there are 70 years of exile to 535 where God begins to put things back together to prepare for the coming of Israel's Messiah. And in preparing for Israel's Messiah... It prepares, obviously, for the period of time in which we are living in, because we have trusted in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. So if you want to know geographically, here's Jerusalem, here's here's the nation of Israel. Anyway, that yellow line would have been the route that they would have been taken, about 350 miles. I don't know if any of them had bikes, but it would have been a little bit quicker to ride a bike that distance. Most of them walked or were on animals of some sort. To the city of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. So the occasion of the writing of this book is this time frame, the exile. And Ezekiel writes in this period of the darkest hour of Israel's history. Just to look forward... This actually begins, the Babylonian exile begins what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse, that's why I'm mentioning it here, the times of the Gentiles. You could date that in 605 as the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Now Jesus says certain things are going to go on until, when will that be? When will be the end of the times of the Gentiles? We are living in the times of the Gentiles right now. The coming of the Lord, yeah. Actually, not the rapture, because the seven years are part of the 
times of the Gentiles. And Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is talking about the end of that seven-year period of time. So that's the times of the Gentiles. The little arrow there is the second coming of Christ, which could be close. And after that, Israel is promised this kingdom. And I, I mentioned last time, that kingdom will have all of the major characteristics of that historical kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And we'll see that in the Olivet Discourse. So the date of writing, the, the book was completed, in terms of its writing, probably 570 B.C. And we have precise dating of prophecies. I'll show you that in a moment here. We might not have time to get to it all, but we'll come back and start wherever we leave off. The precise dating that Ezekiel gives us, the first part of the book, in fact, this is something of an outline in the book, Judgments Against Judah, and he gives specific dates. They're not all the same date, but it's within 592 to 586. And the emphasis there is giving the reasons why Judah is being judged, or we might say disciplined. Make sense? There's another section in the, the book, Judgment of the Nations. God's going to judge the nations in the future. All that reject Israel's Messiah. That's 586 to 584. Those are the, the dates that he writes this portion between the, that period of time. And on the outline, if you look on the back side there, I have, this follows the outline as well. Also, he writes from 584 to 573. The last part of Ezekiel is positive. There's hope. He has to explain why they're under discipline, why they have to suffer as a result of their own sin, but they still have a future. And everything in the Olivet Discourse is looking forward to that restoration of the nation of Israel. So this is laying a foundation for what Jesus is going to talk about. The date of writing is soon, this is the completion, soon after 570 B.C. Purpose of the book, number one, is to confirm Judah's judgment. The prophets have already outlined it, the other prophets have preceded, but Ezekiel confirms it and explains it. And as Linda said earlier, what the prophets do is they're like God's prosecuting attorneys. When God entered into covenant with the nation of Israel, Covenants are contracts. They're contracts. So they have parties, and all of the covenants, the parties of the covenant are Israel, well, most of them, Israel and God. At least the ones in the Bible. Covenants also have what? They not only have parties, but they have what? Any contract. Your mortgage has what? Terms or stipulations, requirements. You're to pay the mortgage on no later than the sixth of the month. Certain dollar amount specifies it very clearly. You don't want to allegorize that, right? About this amount, well, if you're deficient, then there's some penalties that are also specified. All of the covenants have stipulations, and you can read them in Scripture. And what the prophets do is they defend... God's covenants and point out to Israel 
the things that are specified. And what are specified are curses or blessings. If you abide by the covenant, you'll have all of these blessings, and they're spelled out in Deuteronomy 28 in terms of the Mosaic covenant. But also in Deuteronomy 28, what else do we have? If you wander from the one true God and you apostatize, what happens? There are curses and they all correspond. And they're very specific. What the prophets do is they remind the nation of Israel, okay, you violated these stipulations and here is the corresponding judgment. Lack of rain, lack of crops, invasion by enemies, all of these things are disciplined. And they're all specified. So the prophets, particularly Ezekiel, are like God's prosecuting attorneys. Now, they are also like God's defense attorneys for God as well. They serve the twofold function. And what do they do as defense attorneys? Well, they proclaim his glory, but they also specify how God has been faithful in fulfilling the covenant. And part of his faithfulness is bringing these curses, bringing these judgments. So they're defending the glory, the integrity of God. God has always been faithful to all the covenants that we have in the Old Testament. So they're like defense attorneys. Very good. So they confirm Judah's judgment. They announce judgment on the nations, the peoples that are right at this period of time, persecuting the Jewish people or invading their land and historically have and in the future will, they will ultimately be judged by God himself. Now that's a future judgment. And thirdly, another third purpose is to encourage with Israel's ultimate restoration. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And that even goes into the time frame in which we are living all right. Well, let's take a look at some of the characteristics of the book, and that's as far as we'll be able to go today. And I've listed what I got on your outline sheet. I added one. I kind of overlooked it inadvertently. Those that got the email version. So there's one more. So we'll add. What I've added is B on there. So focus on God's glory. That's what we started with, the focus on God's glory. Let's take another look at that. And when we speak of God's glory, remember, think in terms of God revealing something about himself, sometimes in a very spectacular way, sometimes in more subtle, quiet ways. In Ezekiel, it tends to be very overt and very spectacular. So the major theme of the whole thing is God's glory. And let's look at some passages related to God's glory and things related. When we speak of God's glory, it begins with a vision of glory. That's chapter 1, a vision of glory. Somebody read, uh, everybody in Ezekiel? Okay, read. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. This is the beginning here. Okay, here goes. Here it goes. And, and I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashed through Very spectacular. Fire, a cloud. Keep going. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. 
And this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but he had more basic and each of them Okay, and then he goes on and describes all the details of this glorious picture. What does that remind you of, those of you that are familiar with the book of Revelation, exactly, chapters 4 and 5? It seems that John sees the same revelation, and John, after he sees these things, is flattened after he sees the glory of God. We have a reference in chapter 1 as well. So it begins with this vision. Somebody else read chapter 1, 26 through 28. Who's got it? Connie? Now this is at, this is kind of the end of the vision here. The likeness of the glory of the Lord. Keep going. Okay, doesn't it say, and when I saw it? So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I could voice voice. Okay, so he's flat and flat. And that would be the experience of anyone in the immediate presence of God. Now, if you read the details, he has to compare things to things we are familiar with. This is so different from any experience, from anything that we know, that he has to make comparisons here. So if you don't quite understand everything, neither did Ezekiel. All he's doing is just describing what he saw in the best that he can with the language that is available to him. So we have a vision at the beginning, but in the middle we have a very important transition. This glory begins to leave. It's going to leave. And the book explains why it leaves, but let's take a look at some other passages on the leaving. Skip to chapter 10. Somebody read verse 4. Who's got 10-4? Okay, go ahead. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and then he came over the cloud, and the heart was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The glory went up. Remember, when we were in the book of Hebrews, I gave you a detailed explanation of the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. And now, glory of the Lord is lifted up. Now let's keep reading. Uh, why don't you continue and skip to verses 18 and 19. Read those two. And somebody pick up chapter 11. Who's, who wants to do 11? You got it, Jim? Yep. Or wait a minute. You're going to do 18 and 19 first? Right. Okay. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim departed. They lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. Okay, the glory is leaving, leaving the temple. And then it's culminated with the glory totally gone. You got it? 23 and 24. So now it's leaving the city. It left the Holy of Holies, it left the temple, and now it's leaving the city. It's, it's leaving. And what this is, is God's presence amongst his people. This is very, very significant in the Old Testament. Remember the temple was the place that God had chosen to manifest his glory. 
to manifest his presence in the Old Testament. From here on out, that presence is going to be gone. Ezekiel records it in vision form. Keep reading. And the glory of the Lord, the glory of God is from high above them. The glory of the Lord went up in the midst of the sea, stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And the city what is the mountain on the east side of the city? Olivet. Olivet. That's where the Olivet discourse was spoken, if you will. That's where the disciples were on Mount Olivet. That's exactly where the the uh, spirit leaves. Keep reading. The spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the spirit of God, and she took me up to those in captivity and the vision that I have seen went up. Okay, so the glory leaves. The glory never was in the reconstructed temple when the exiles returned. The glory was not in the Herodian temple. The glory will not return until when? I don't think it's coincidental who returns to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> Jesus Christ, when he returns, returns to the very spot that the glory or the glory of God parted. Interestingly also, where is the glory of God today? Hmm? In general, yeah. Where does God dwell today? On earth. He has chosen to dwell in those that have trusted in him and only those that trust in him. Not churchgoers, not Americans necessarily, but everyone that has trusted in Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of Pentecost. The... Uh, Book of Acts records that. For the first time, the glory of God dwells within individuals. But in the future, the glory of God is going to return, and the glory of God is going to be in that millennial temple. That's one of the main things that the book of Ezekiel gives us. At the end, it gives us millennial glory. And let's read some passages there. Who wants to look up 44.4? You got it? Chapter 44, wait till everybody gets there, wait till I get there. 44, verse 4. Now, this is the future. Uh, this is where the book of Ezekiel ends. It's describing things in that 1,000-year kingdom. There's going to be a millennial temple. Ezekiel gives the most detail of any place in the Bible of what that temple will be like exact dimensions and all kinds of descriptive terms, but the main thing is what we have in 44.4. You got it? Now, this is that millennial temple that he's, he's visualizing. Future. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Okay, a return of the glory. It will not return until the millennial kingdom. Now, he manifests something of his presence in the midst of the believer in the age in which we live in. But that glory that Israel saw in the Old Testament will return. And it left during the exile, will return not till Christ returns and, and the millennial temple will be rebuilt. Who wants to close in a word of prayer? It's a good place to stop. We'll pick up here next week. Closing thought here. Can people see the glory of God in our lives today? Jeremy, why don't you go? Lord, we just praise you 
Amen. Just 